Let's take our Bibles and let's talk about that good God by going to the book of Job. The book of Job. If you're unfamiliar where that is, go in the Old Testament, find the book of Psalms, and it's right before that. The book of Job, spelled J-O-B like Job, the book of Job, please. We're returning to this series after we've been away from it for several weeks. We did the first four or five messages on that subject. So let me do a little bit of background, a little bit of review while you get notes either out of the bulletin or raise your hand. But as we get started this morning, let me remind you about something that happened in 1903. It was the beginning of the age of the automobile a few years before that. And so with that age of the automobile came the idea that we've got to have power and speed. And so they formed some races. One of the races that occurred that was an international race over in in, uh, Europe was one that became known as the race of death. It was supposed to be a race of 870 miles from Paris all the way down to Madrid, Spain. And it talks about how those people, there was over 200 different folk who were racing their automobiles at the time. Articles talk about how they reached a breakneck speed of 80 miles an hour as they were going. Now remember at that time they didn't have highways. The roads were more of just dirt roads. They didn't have a racetrack. They just used the common roads and they didn't put up barriers So of the 100,000 people that lined the roads, those French people who lined from Paris going out of the city, they were right up against the edge of the road. And there was no barriers of protection. And with those cars being built the way they were, the roads they were, and going at such a high speed of of 80 miles an hour, a number of cars started crashing. And they started crashing not only into some solid things like buildings, trees, they started taking out people. The initial reports were 500 people were killed who were spectators. Now, when it became word time, the numbers were brought down. But there was that high number killed, and then there was many, many others who were injured and maimed. So after just 343 miles, they stopped the race. But it has been forever known as the race of death, that people were injured. They made the mistake of getting involved in the race and going there and watching it. There was another incident in American soil that happened a few years later. It was in 1890, or a few years earlier, 1896. There was, um, his name was William Crush. He worked for the railroad department, and he was one of those in charge of materials. And so there was a lot of locomotives that were wearing out, and they needed to figure out what to do with these old locomotives, sell them for scrap, do something with. He came up with the ingenious idea of, let's do a train wreck. Let's do a a spectator-oriented crash. Take two locomotives and let's run them headlong into each other, each with seven boxcars behind. And let's do this display because people would gather whenever there was a a train crash. So let's do it. So 50,000 people showed up just north of Waco, Texas in a town that was a tent town. It wasn't anything until they put the tracks there and they advertised this and all of a sudden it grew in a week's time to 50,000 people coming to be spectators of this phenomenal bill as it was built train crash. So they started the trains out and by the way politicians showed up because they had a crowd and there were speeches and all and then they put the trains a mile apart. And on the signal that William Crush gave, the train started. And by the time that they worked to each other, there was a combined speed of around 90 miles an hour that they hit head on. People were standing around. They were backed up, you know, a couple hundred yards. But when the trains crashed, the steams within the engines, they exploded. One of the smokestacks from one of the trains landed a quarter of a mile away. Parts were scattered. People were hit with bolts, metal, 
One little boy sitting in a tree took uh, one of the irons right into the head. Dozens were killed. Dozens were maimed. By the way, William Crush was fired on the spot. Okay? Another tragedy because of foolish mistakes, foolish decisions. We come to the book of Job, and we have in the book of Job a tragedy that happens to a man. Unfortunately, he didn't make a foolish decision. It happened to him because he decided to follow the Lord. And as he's following the Lord, all of a sudden he gets hit with a train wreck of life. All of a sudden he is in a race for his life. Do you remember the scenario? I can't go through all the texts. We've already preached through and looked at chapters 1, 2, 3 in depth. But let me just remind you of what happened. There's a meeting that takes place between God and Satan in heaven one day. God is boasting upon his peoples. The one he picks out in particular is Job. And he says, have you considered Job? Have you seen my servant Job down there? Job is so righteous and so godly. As a result, Satan accuses God and Job that the only reason that Job is following you, Lord, is because you're giving him things. Take away the things and he'll stop following you. So, as a result, God gives Joe, uh, Satan permission and, Joe, and Satan attacks Job. The attacks come in a very speedy you know, fashion that, that, with severity that is unbelievable. It is so intense. The story unfolds that in the attacks, they come in, they come in basic waves. First of all, there's the attack of some of the thieves who come and they take away all of his cattle and oxen. And then all of a sudden, Job hears a report from another servant who talks about how the fire came down from heaven and it wiped out a lot of his property. And while that man's giving the report, all of a sudden a third comes and says, oh, and then there was some other invaders and they took away all of some more of your properties. And by the way, each one reports that I am the only one left. All of your servants have been destroyed. And so Job is sitting there absolutely stunned that all of a sudden the stock market of his life has bottomed out. It is worse than the, the crash of the Great Depression. He's lost everything. He doesn't have a checking account anymore. He's just done. And then he hears the next one come up and give a report. Your ten children, there they were, and they were having a celebration for one of your son's birthdays. And while they were in the house, a great wind, a tornado, we're familiar with those things, swept through and collapsed the house on all of your children. All of your children and their servants are dead. What a day. What a day that Job went through. He lost all of his security. He lost his friends, his co-workers. In one day, he is unable to provide for the widows, the, or, the children left of all of his servants that were killed. He has no way to be able to help them. In this one day, all of a sudden, he lost his entire family, except his wife. Everybody's gone. None of us here have had such a day. But some of us have had different events of portions of something like that. And then Job finds out that without anything, with nothing left, all of a sudden a lot of people want nothing to do with you. You had friends before, but they were friends because they wanted something from you. And so Job all of a sudden enters into a lonely phase. Job's response is in chapter 1, verse 20 and 20 through 22, which we, we've got to read. We've got to just set the scene. It says at the end of chapter 1, Then Job arose, he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell upon the ground, and he worshipped. There's no doubt about it, folks. He's grieving. He's mourning. He's in pain. 
And then he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, he did not sin. Satan said he would, but he didn't. Satan said, take away everything and he's going to deny you God. He didn't. And Job remains loyal to God. Satan is irate. God boasts upon him once again. And and Satan says to God, he says, well, the only reason that he's remaining loyal is he's got his health. Take away his health. And God gives permission for Satan to to bring another onslaught. And in this onslaught, Job is all of a sudden afflicted with whatever it is, it is horrible. There's the fevers, there's the aches, there's the boils over his body. He has difficulty breathing. He He can't sleep. He's got bad breath. He's got... You know, this soreness and it's just pain. He's scraping the sores and he's, he's in such torments. And then on top of it, we find out from, from what his comments are, we'll see a little bit more about this tonight, that it apparently goes on for months and months. It's not just a quick illness. Like, you know, you and I get the flu and we say, okay, it's a 24-hour bug. So we know 24 hours from now we'll at least get better. Not for Job. And Job is just decimated physically. And then in the middle of all this, Job's wife has had enough. Mrs. Job makes comment to him. She says, she's, she's, now remember, understand, put her, yourself in her shoes. She has lost everything that they've worked for together. She's lost her kids. She is now watching her husband in pain and in agony. There's nothing she can do. She can't change the situation. We already told you about how some other historical records indicate that she is saying she has to go beg people for her own bread. She's in a destitute situation. So she comes to her husband and she encourages him to put an end to it. She says to him these words, she says, curse God and die. Don't take it wrong. Don't take it like she is some miserable woman or wicked woman. Look at it from the perspective that she, like all of Job's friends, and like Job himself, think that God has turned against Job. That God is against him. That's their understanding. That won't be cleared up until the end of the book. And so she is thinking that, Job, God is against you. You know, the only way to get rid of this is just finish it. Finally, curse God. If you curse God, he'll, he'll be done with you. And you'll die, and you will have, you know some type of relief. By the way, she's not the only one that's thinking, I want relief in death. Job is too. Chapter 3, Job says that several times. If I could just die, if I could just be at an end of all this. And so she's saying, curse God. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't take the advice. He looks to her and he says, you are speaking like one of those foolish women. You've never done this before. You know, you're speaking as a foolish woman. Shall we not receive good and bad at the hand of God? And the Bible says he did not sin with his lips. That's Job. That's where he is as we continue the story. We end up at the end of chapter 2 where Job is all of a sudden in an ash heap. He's in the dump. That's where he is, he is cast out by the others. He has put himself in the local refuse place. And there he sits by himself. His wife is, she just doesn't know what to do. And Job sits by himself, and then all of a sudden three friends come from a far country. And they come and they sit with him. And we talked about how they were gracious enough to come, men that he had communicated with, he had relationships with in the past, and they sit there and they say nothing for seven days. 
They just sit there. They see he is grieving. They don't break the, break the conversation. They leave it up to Job to initiate. Are you ready to talk? Are you ready to be able to speak? Because up to that point, I suppose he's like you and me. He can't even speak at this moment. Every time he tries to formulate a word, he's crying so hard. He's mourning. His lips are just shaking. His jaw is trembling. And he can't get out a word. Remember, he's grieving ten kids. He's grieving his health is gone. So they sit. And then what we have happens is chapter 3, Job opens his mouth. And when Job opens his mouth, he speaks what he's feeling. You might, and some of you told me afterwards, you still think he's rebelling against God. I don't think that at all. I think he maintains integrity, but he just tells God exactly what he thinks. God, this is too much. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I just feel like I can't do it anymore. God, I feel like the way to, to let... Please let me die. He's not suicidal. He's not actively looking to take his life. But he is, in chapter 3, he is basically saying, I feel like it's midnight and there is no, no opportunity to get out of the darkness. Some of you know exactly what Job is feeling. You have gone through death. You have gone through or are going through disease. You are going through chronic pain and illness and no relief. And you feel like death would be a release. That's where Job's at. Job spoke that. Job said those words. He even said, and this is the key phrase as he wraps up in chapter 3, he says, the thing that I feared most, it's come upon me. And we ended up our series so far with this statement, that Job is saying that which I thought, please, please, don't ever let it happen. Some think it's maybe his illness, that he said in the past, I never want to have sores. I never want to lose my child. I never want to be absolutely destitute. Okay, we understand that. That makes sense. We can relate to that. But I think there's something deeper. When he says, that which I feared the most. Do you remember in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6? He feared his children might not walk with the Lord, so he made sacrifice. He feared getting away from God. And Job, in his thinking, is thinking, God has turned against me. This, all these trials, God, God has turned against me. I don't understand why, but apparently I am no longer close to God and he is punishing me. He doesn't understand what's gone on in heaven. He doesn't have any clue about Satan attacking him. He doesn't know that. He just thinks this is all from God, period. And God is against me. He's against me. God is angry with me for whatever reason I don't know and the thing I feared the most is here God is upset with me and I don't know why that's where he ends up in chapter 3 chapter 4 opens up a whole new section of the book chapter 4 begins a series of conversations that take place Job's friends and Job start dialoguing they will go from chapter 4 all uh, chapter 4 all the way to chapter 32 there will be one of them speaking, and then Job answering. One of them speaking, then Job answering. One of them speaking, Job answering. This will recycle almost three times. The third time, only two of them speak. And they're going to have conversations back and forth. In their conversations, 
They're trying to figure out why is this happening to Job. They're answering the age-old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And so in these conversations, what is basically just to summarize, I'll give you the preview of the whole thing. His three friends are saying, Job, God is against you. And the reason God is against you, you're wondering why. God is against you because you've got some sin in your life that you won't confess. You've got something secret. Why don't you just fess up? And that's going to be the debate. Job's going to say, well, I think God is against me. I, I feel like that, but I don't know why. You know why. You know why. It's because. And that's, that's the argument. And that's what happens throughout this book. Now, the first one to speak is Eliphaz. Eliphaz, the Temanite. And I remind you what we talked about before. He's older. He, of the three friends, he seems to be the oldest by statements. He seems to be the leader because when God finally speaks and says, you're all wrong, and I'm not against Job, when, he, when this happens, he speaks to Eliphaz as the leader of the three men and talks to him. Now, Eliphaz the Temanite, Teman is an ancient, becomes the ancient capital of Edom. It's mentioned in Obadiah as well, as this is a center of wise men. This would be like the scholarly place in that period of time. So the, the, the common thought is Eliphaz is one of the philosophers. Eliphaz is probably one of the scholars. He's of the, you know, the upper crust of academia coming, and he is giving advice. And apparently he's a wise man, so his advice should count for something. And by the way, I'm just going to lay this out at the beginning. You're not going to think so by the end of the message. But when Eliphaz speaks, he is the kindest, most compassionate of all the men who are speaking. Especially in chapters, um, in chapter 4 and 5 where he talks, he's, he's saying things in a very, supposedly, t- by comparison to the others, very tactful. I don't think he's tactful. I, I think ac- absolutely that he is just, what he says is just amazing. In fact, God tells him later on, God speaks to Eliphaz when, he, when God finally gets in, and he says to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you. You have not spoken of me the thing that is right. The advice that you give Job, starting with chapter 4, it's wrong, and God's going to rebuke him for that. And so when we come to chapters 4 and 5 and look at what Eliphaz does, we keep that all in mind, that what he is saying is, uh, is not biblically correct, the way he's doing it, the way, what he's saying. And we understand that the way he's saying it, he's absolutely crushing Job. We'll talk about that more tonight, how Job handles somebody who is non-compassionate. None of you ever run into people like that. Okay. But we'll talk about that tonight. And so what I've come to conclusion, calling Eliphaz the elephant, who just gets in there, he stomps all over Job, is this is what I'm learning from it. You know, whether it makes any difference to you, this is what I'm taking from it. For me, it was extremely important to look and say, as somebody who wants to sometimes talk to other people and give advice to other people, whether it be kids or friends or whoever, don't do the errors of Eliphaz the elephant. Avoid what he did. What were they? What were his three major errors? Number one is this. Number one, he assumed the worst about Job. As we begin with these first few verses, look at what he basically what he says. Eliphaz, the elephant, oh, I'm sorry, the Temanite, answered and said, If we attempt to commune with thee, you will be grieved. But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, you will have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands in the past. Your words have upholden him that had fallen. You have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it has come upon you, and you faint. It toucheth thee, thou art troubled. 
Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, that, that uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or wherever, was there ever somebody who was righteous, did they ever get cut off? Okay, now a couple thoughts here. He's going to say to him very clearly, we read it. He says, although you've counseled others, what happens is if we say something to you, you're going to get angry with us. Well, you know, I'm assuming that you aren't going to handle any type of advice. You aren't going to listen to me. You're not going to you know, be patient. You're going to get angry. Then what he does, he says, you tell others how to handle trials, but you don't do it yourself. You're kind of a hypocrite. Job, you, you, you tell other people what to do and how to, how to trust the Lord, but now you're not trusting the Lord. You know, so you, you, you just, you know, where's your faith? Where's your uprightness? Besides, as he goes on, and we read where he said, have you ever seen the righteous cut off? He goes, and he's made, you know, have you ever seen somebody perish who was innocent? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity, verse 8, they sow wickedness, they reap the same. By the blast of, the, of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostril they're consumed. In other, words, in other words, Job, you reap what you sow. And by the way, we know that's a biblical truism, but he's applying it further than what the Scriptures does. He is saying that you've got problems in your life. And the only reason you have problems, you've got to have done something wrong. Notice the next couple of verses, how, how cruel he gets. In. He says, um, the roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions, they're broken. In other words, Job, you were like a fierce lion. You were one that people just, you know, what you said, that carried weight. The old lion then perishes for lack of prey. All of a sudden, you know, you've lost everything that you've been relying upon. And the stout lion's whelps, verse 11. What's a whelp? When you read this, you better be reading it so you understand what he's saying. Okay. Okay. Children. He says, and the, the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. What's he referring to? Job, your kids died. They're all dead, and you know whose fault it is? It's yours. Now, that's a way to help a grieving parent. I mean, somebody who loses a child, by nature, you're going to say, did I do something? Maybe I should have done something different. Here he is, this elephant, the Eliphaz, uh, Eliphaz, the elephant. He is just coming right in. He's saying, it's your fault. Everything in your life that's happening, righteous people, this never happens to. This, this, this is going on because you're wicked. Wicked are the people who get punished. You're wicked. And your kids have died because you have some sin in your life. Talk about being tactful. So he's assuming the worst about Job right away. Then number two, he makes another big mistake. The other mistake is he assumes he has greater spiritual insight than any others around him. The way that that unfolds is watch where it goes. Watch what he does now in the next verses. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, and a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, that spirit, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was right before my eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying. In other words, what he's telling Job is he has some type of spiritual revelation take place. And it really shocked him. This revelation from God. And he describes it. He says, The Spirit told me, Shall mortal man be more than a just God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? 
Uh, by the way, how do you answer those two questions? If you have to say yes or no, what is it? Shall mortal man be more, more, more justified than God? No. Shall a man be more pure than his maker? No, no. Yeah, by the way, you got it right, because the original, that's the answer. Okay. He goes on, he says, Behold, he or God puts no trust in his servants, um, probably heavenly servants, and his angels he charged with folly. Is that true that some of the angels went against God? And God could rightly accuse them? And he doesn't trust all of the angelic hosts because some have done wrong? Is that true? Okay, okay. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay? Now he's making a comparison between the angels and who? Which creatures are in houses of clay? In other words, of dust. From dust you came to dust you return. Okay, he's saying, okay, if God's holy angels, some of them, you know, aren't trustworthy, then, and he's making the analogy now, the comparison. And uh, he goes on, he says, whose foundation is the dust which are crushed before the moth? Okay, you think God's going to trust you? They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. And so he's making some statements in this dream. Okay, and let's, let's just make sure we remember, we've read it, and here's what it is. Eliphaz is giving him this, this, you know, God spoke to me. And when God spoke to me, he's just making some statements that, you know, about man and God and how we stand before God. And, and we have to admit, there is some truth to what he said. It is true, okay? Mortal man is not more righteous than God. It is true. No man is purer than God. It is true. Some angels are not trustworthy, that is true. Satan and his third that followed. Okay? They committed folly before God. That is true. Okay? But then his next statement's I question. Where he goes on, he says, even less trustworthy are feeble men. Well, you know, define what you want by that. He says, feeble men are weak. They're like a moth that gets crushed. They have limited impact. They, they, they don't, they, you know, there, there isn't attention given to these men. There's like this moth fluttering around and you kind of just ignore it and they come and they go quickly and their works, they're like a tent that hasn't been fastened down and the wind blows and there goes the guy. Okay? And he's making these comments and he says that people then, and you read the rest of it, he says, people who are, who are frail, okay? We do admit we have frailty. He says, does not their excellency, uh, which is their impact, their, their, um, their achievements, they're just gone. They don't last. Nothing that they do. And they die without wisdom. Okay, I, I, now I start having a problem with what he's saying. Okay, he's attacking Job personally, that you're crushed like a moth, that your life has been like this tent that's been blown away. And he's given some truisms. However, does God notice people? Where he says that they go away and they're not even regarded. Does God notice people? Even though he's righteous and he's holy, does God in heaven, does he take attention and, and focus and know what's going on in your life? In fact, God even knows the number of hairs on our head. Okay, does, does any of our works last? He's, he's saying your works don't last. Your life is done, you're gone. It's, do any of your good works, will they go with you into eternity? There's a truth to that that says we lay up in store our treasures in heaven. 
he implies that God doesn't trust his children. He can't. He couldn't trust the angels. He doesn't trust people. Does God trust you? Don't, don't, it's not to make you feel proud. But does God give you responsibilities? Does he give you treasures? Are you not an heir of God? Doesn't he allow you and entrust you with responsibility like your kids? Like your jobs? Like your finances? Like being able to handle the word of God? To share it, to give it, to live it? But he says, you know, we're, just, we're just so frail. We're nothing in the mind of God. Does God give wisdom to his own children? Yeah, in fact, the fear of the Lord is the what? Okay, here Eliphaz has a very sour, dismal view of God Almighty. Okay, and he's coming and he's saying, I just know this. This is what the, the Spirit told me. By the way, if a spirit is so decrying God, what spirit is it? It's not a spirit of God that makes, makes it say, that, that gives the impression that God is really distanced from his creation, that God doesn't care about people, that God is just this vindictive creature on a throne that, you know, if you get out of line, you're done. Okay, right away. You know, that's the way God is being presented by this spirit that came. So he claims to have this revelatory agreement. Now, now, here's where I go with this. How do you respond to somebody who says, God spoke to me? How do you, how do you say to them, you're wrong? God spoke to me. How, how do you respond to somebody who says, I've got this deep gift of discernment that is beyond anybody else? How do you refute that? How do you, how do you refute somebody who in their application of truth... They have found something in scriptures that nobody else has seen. By the way, if somebody tells you they found something in scriptures that nobody else has seen, it's probably because it's not there. Okay? But this is what Eliphaz is claiming. Eliphaz is saying, I've got some great spiritual insight. You've got to listen to me because of who I am. God spoke to me. His spiritual insight goes a little bit further. He says... Job, I know. I know the reason for your sufferings. Now he expands upon that in chapter, chapter 5 here, where he goes on, he says, Call now, if there be any that will answer thee, to which of the saints will you turn? Wrath kills the foolish man. Envy slays the silly one. I have seen foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety. They're crushing the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. Whose harvest the hungry eats up. They take it even out of the thorns. The robbers swallow up their substance. Although affliction comes not forth out of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. Man is born into trouble, and the sparks fly as sparks fly upward. I would seek unto... He says, Job, Job, listen. Here's... I, I, I got it all figured out. I've got a pat answer for you, Job. The truth is, God always and only punishes those who do evil. Right away. We should add that, right away. Okay? Punishment includes great suffering. And he's listed off some of the suffering. He's mentioned death, loss of children, loss of possessions, being robbed. Who had death in his household? Who lost his kids? Who's suffering loneliness? Who has been robbed? 
Job, 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 Job. Who's he talking about in this verse? Job, it's happened to you because you're being punished. This great suffering is because God always punishes evil right away. Right away. Therefore, you're suffering. God punishes evil. You've done something wrong. And there's no hesitancy. I mean, he is just... Now, I, I believe this too. Will God eventually punish evil? Will he be done with it? Yes. We have no doubt about that. But we also know that God is loving and willing to extend mercy. He is not willing at this time. He is not willing that any should perish, but that they should have the opportunity to do what? Come to repentance. Okay? And, and by the way, is it only the evil who suffer? There, you, you know where this is. If something bad is happening to you, it's because you are bad. Then what do you do with this verse? What do you do that all who live godly will suffer persecution? Persecution is, is something bad in this life. Eliphaz is wrong, folk. Eliphaz is absolutely wrong. But he sounds like a lot of TV preachers. He sounds like a lot of modern folk. He, basically what he does here is he says, Okay, Job, you've not asked me, but I've got such great spiritual insight. I've got all the answers. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You haven't asked me what you want, what you should do, but I'm going to give you advice. And you better listen to my advice. The only problem with the, the advice is unsolicited. Don't you hate advice when you never asked for it? And here he does. He lays it out. As for me is basically what it talks about in the original in verse 8. As for me, I would seek unto God, and unto God I would commit my cause, which does the God who does great things unsearchable, marvelous, without number. In other words, where that word for I would seek God, it has the idea, and by the way, the verbing of this in the Hebrew is amazing. I would begin, okay, I would begin to turn to the Lord. In other words, you haven't been turning to the Lord. You need to repent, is what he says. Okay, and so he says, I would go back to the Lord, I'd go to the Lord, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, everything will be okay. That leads us to his third error. His third error is this, okay? His third error, he assumes God always, always, always works a certain way in every situation. He's got a cookie-cutter view of God. He's got a view that God is very, very cruel, very um, harsh, you know, very judgmental. And he's got an idea that God always works in a... And by the way, are there certain things that God always does? I'll give you one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Okay. If you call unto me, I will answer thee. But does he always answer the way that we want him to? Okay. So there are certain things that God has committed himself to. But, but Eliphaz isn't saying, well, God committed himself. This is, just, this is the way God always works. God always works this way. God always, as we just read, God always punishes evil right away. Always. The evildoer is punished right away. Do you agree with Eliphaz? Are evil people, evildoers, always punished right away? Then why did Hitler rise to power? Why do, yeah, I was going to start naming other political characters. I won't go there. Let, let's just go. Let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, David says this, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the, what, is, what does it say? 
prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. He's not saying it's, it's bad for him. He's saying they're, they're enjoying you know, the foods. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I get out of line ever so little and whack, God, get, you know, God corrects me. This guy over here, a Philistine, he can rise to power and he can do all kinds of wickedness and he keeps on staying in power. I don't get it. Oh, by the way, at the end of Psalm 73, he says, I went into the house of the Lord and I finally understood it. The only thing they have that is beneficial is in this life. And God will one day judge them. But at the beginning, David's being very clear, very much like you and I. Why is it that somebody does evil and they get away with their evil doings? Eliphaz says, no, no, that never happens. And then Eliphaz goes on and he says, oh, by the way, God always punishes evildoers immediately. We know that's not true. And God will always, always physically bless those who do right. He sounds like a prosperity gospel guy. And that's exactly what he does. And by the way, does God bless if we repent? Yes, he does. He forgives us. But does he remove every single consequence of, of the sin that we may have done? No. No. In fact, watch what Eliphaz does. Eliphaz says, in the next few verses, just kind of just to hasten it up, he says, if you repent, Job, here's what God will do. He will exalt you and lift you up. Now, I don't know if he's talking about socially, emotionally. We know that Job needed that. Financially, it seems that he's into the physical realm, that God will exalt you. God will put you back into being rich if you, if you follow. Then he goes on, he will protect you from the sword and the attacks of others. Look at verse 15. You won't be attacked again. If you follow God, you'll never have another battle. He says he will restore your hope and happiness. He says he will restore your health. He says he will keep you from six, yea, seven great evils of life. If you repent, Job, none of these will ever, ever, ever come into your life. And then he lists them. Look at what he lists, starting with verse 19. He lists, he says, He shall deliver you from these six troubles, yea, and seven. No evil will ever touch you. And he starts going, you see him. Verse 20, what's the first thing he says that you'll never have? You'll never go hungry again. You'll never go hungry. Your wife won't have to be begging. Oh, by the way, you will never be defeated in warfare. You will win every battle. Oh, by the way, you will never suffer any kind of physical attack or abuse or violence in your house again. Oh, and by the way, no wild beast will ever be a threat to you. Oh, and by the way, you will never suffer financial loss or hardships once again. If you just follow God, you'll be rich. Oh, and by the way, you will never lose any, any have a lack of descendants. You will have a, a process. And remember in that society, in that year, that was their, their greatest investment. Their greatest treasure was to be able to have generations after them. He says, you will have them. Oh, and by the way, verse 26, you will never suffer an early death. In fact, if you read verse 26, he is saying that you will live with perfect health until the moment you die. Um, that means a lot of you aren't righteous. Some of you got sickness. Some of you have financial problems. Some of you have experienced some hunger. Some of you have, you know, have had difficulties. 
Well, according to this gospel of prosperity preacher called Eliphaz, if you turn to God, you will never have any other difficulty in your life. Man, a days, doesn't that smack you as heresy? Read the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11. Many godly saints, they were cut asunder. They were put to the sword. They gave up everything. Jesus Christ even said that I don't even have a place to put my head, but a what? A stone, a rock. But this man is giving what, what people often want to hear. He is absolutely wrong in what he's teaching. And then he ends up with these words. It's true. It's true. We studied it. So it is. You need to hear it for yourself, Job. Job, you gotta, you got to believe me, Job. I had an angel tell me this. you got to believe me. i got more insight than anybody else. And Job, you better listen to me. You better do what I say. And if you do what I say, this is exactly how it's going to work in your life. And he's got all the answers. What do we learn from the account? What is portrayed in the account? Well-meaning people may add to your pain by what they say. I, I know it would never happen here. Okay. But if any of you have experienced some really tragic situations, you might hear somebody walk up and, who is well-meaning, but they might say with a loss of a child, well, at least you have others. With a loss of a spouse, well, at least now you have financial security. Seriously? Wouldn't you rather have the spouse than the insurance money? If Deb were here, I'd look at her right now and say, right? You'd rather have me than the insurance money? And she would go, and you would understand why. Okay. But is it true that some people may say things that throw us off, that, that just cut to the core, and that just... And when that happens... You don't retaliate. You don't give up on God because of somebody saying something dumb. Something else I learned. Don't readily listen to all counselors who line up to address your issues. I know that if it's on the internet, it must be true. But isn't it amazing how we run sometimes to people and say, oh, well, they said exactly what I needed to hear, and it really isn't what you needed to hear, it's what you... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful who we listen to for advice. Test what they say with the predominant teaching of Scripture. By the way, do you remember? I pointed this out. Eliph did Eliphaz say everything... Let's rephrase it. Everything Eliphaz said, was it wrong? Some of it was true. When Satan came to Eve, was some of it true? But some of it was false. Be careful. Be careful. Be especially cautious with those who claim extra revelation or that they see something nobody else has seen. Be very, very careful of somebody claiming unique teaching. If you know someone who is hurting, you've got a job in your life or in your family you don't want to do what Eliphaz did, obviously. But don't be afraid of reaching out. You look at Eliphaz and you go, man, a days he said such dumb things. I don't know if I might do that too. Yeah, you and I might. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to reach out. Because if we say things the right way, with the right motive, we can be a blessing. Heaviness in the heart of a man makes it stupid. But a good word makes it glad. 
We know in scriptures, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, health to the bones. We know the Bible says a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. We can be a blessing to somebody if we say it the right way, with the right attitude, but it has to make sure, we have to make sure that what we say is done in the right spirit, that we are cautious and gracious in what we say, but we must be biblical. We must be biblical in what we say. Don't assume because of your age, because of your position, that you can say anything, whatever you think, whenever you want. Be very, very careful with how you talk with other people. Let's, let's remind ourselves that a man has joy by the answer of his mouth. I, I, I've not fully understand that until I'm thinking about it here with this study. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth. I've always just read it as by the answer of somebody else's mouth. And that's not what it says. What he's getting at is this. If we are able to give the appropriate answers, it can be a delight to them and to us. That we can say, I've helped somebody. And thank you, God, that I had that opportunity to help somebody by giving them good counsel. So a man has joy by the answer of his mouth and make sure that that word you're speaking is in due season at the right moment. And then he concludes, he says, how good it is. James warns us. There's a tongue. Be careful what we say. If we bless God, the Father, we curse men, they're made, men made after the image, out of the same mouth can come blessings and condemnations to people. My brethren, that ought not to be. So as I bring it all together, I understand that God's word encourages me, be careful, be wise in what I say. Be careful with my speech. Make sure that we are showing meekness and wisdom, not like an Eliphaz. Not like an Eliphaz who came in and because of his position, he basically created a train wreck for Job. He all of a sudden was running a race of death for Job. Bad decisions. Bad decisions. Don't do what Eliphaz did. Be careful this week that you don't, with your attitude, assume the worst about others. Don't assume you have greater spiritual insights. Don't assume you know how God is dealing with that person specifically in their circumstances. And if I'm going to bring it down to one kind of phrase, one thought, like some weeks we've said, bless God, trust God, be close to God. Here's my one thought. Be careful with our words. Be really careful with our words this week. Be really cautious. Build up. Don't beat down. Build up your kids. Don't beat them down. Build up your spouse. Don't beat them down. Build up your co-workers. Don't beat them down. Build up those other believers who ask for prayer and encouragement. Don't beat them down. Be cautious, careful. Speak the truth in love. If there needs to be correction, you do that. But you do it with a spirit that says, I'm not assuming the worst. I'm going by the scriptures. Be very careful with your words this week. Now, you want a classic illustration of careful with words? Of building up? Come unto me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. You're going to find rest. My yoke is easy. He doesn't say life is going to all of a sudden become peachy keen. You're still going to have a yoke, but you're going to be able to carry it. I will help you through. I will carry you through. My burden is not like the other people who are the Pharisees or the Eliphazes who put great burdens and, and tear you down. I'm inviting you. 
Come to me. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you the forgiveness you seek. I will give you the restoration you seek. I will give you the answers that you seek. I will give you all the help you need in your trial and in your trouble. But you have to come to me. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. If you have never yet accepted Christ to be your Savior, I invite you this week to make sure of your eternal destiny and your relationship with God by coming through Jesus Christ, by asking Him for personal forgiveness, for making you a child of God, for a guaranteed home in heaven. Life will still be difficult. There will still be those dungeons. You'll hit some midnight hours. But you know at the midnight... You can still be praising God because you'll have a walk with Him. You'll know you're His child. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We come before the Lord as we close our service. God, help us. Help us not to be like Eliphaz. Help me to be careful with my words, please. Help me to build up, not to beat down people. Help, help us as a group to respond right when somebody may not treat us Speak to us the way we need. Help us to be biblical in our advice and in our conversations. Help us to be able to have a great priority and to respond the way Job responded, as we'll look at this evening.